Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled, entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. It's Ali Jaffe, your host, and welcome to today's podcast on Nutritank Nourish Your Mind. We actually have someone on the podcast who's taught me whilst I've been a medical student. Julian Hamilton Shield is a professor of diabetes and metabolic endocrinology at the University of Bristol. He has been a consultant paediatrician at Bristol Royal Hospital for Children since 1997 and currently runs a childhood obesity clinic. His main research interests encompass neonatal glucose metabolism, childhood obesity and its treatment diabetes mellitus and the development of insulin resistance through childhood. Like myself and my co-founder Ian Broadley, Professor Hamilton Shield was a University of Bristol medical student on one of Professor Julian Hamilton Shield's childhood obesity clinic. I learned a great deal and I hope you do too today on this podcast. So I'm going to give you some stats about childhood obesity in Bristol. A total of 333 children in reception in year 6 in Bristol were recorded as severely obese when they were measured for the National Child Measurement Programme in 2017-18. to There were 7 children who weighed more than 13 stone, while 19 weighed more than 12 stone. Here's some more stats about childhood obesity in the UK. Using National Child Measurement Programme data relating to primary school children, NHS Digital states that more than one in five children are overweight or obese when they begin school, and one in three children are overweight or obese by the time they leave primary school. Obesity rates are highest in the most deprived 10% of the population, approximately twice that of the least deprived 10%. Just a disclaimer to our listeners, this is quite a technical podcast today, as we're lucky enough to have a leading childhood obesity specialist, so there might be a little bit of medical jargon and um, quite a few terms that lay people may not have heard of. So just as a disclaimer, let's welcome our guest, Professor Julian Hamilton Shield. Yes, let's get this thing started. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, Professor. Great to have you on the show. Can you just start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and where you work? Yeah, um, I work at the Children's Hospital. Um, I work in the Department of Diabetes and Endocrinology. And I also work at the university in the Biomedical Research Centre in the nutrition team. That's great. And so how did you get into endocrinology? How did you decide that that was the specialty you wanted to go into? Well, after I qualified as a doctor, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I went and did some paediatrics and quite liked it. And so stayed on at the Children's Hospital to do an SHO job or two. And then I was lucky enough to get my MRCP because we used to take the Royal College of Physicians exams in those days. Uh, And so I went down to Plymouth to be a registrar, but I kind of thought I needed to go up to London. So I applied to go up to the hospitals for sick children, which used to be a few in those Mm -hmm. days. And so I worked as an SHO 
first did Great Ormond Street and then got on the registrar, senior registrar rotation and worked at a hospital called Queen Elizabeth's Hackney and then worked back in Great Ormond Street. And then I got married and I couldn't afford a house in London, so I came back to Bristol to do my research. <laughs> and then I was lucky enough to get a paper in Nature during my research and uh, basically I had a few job offers from various places, but I decided I was just starting a family, so I decided to stay in Bristol. And <laughs> funny enough, I've stayed there ever since. <laughs> it's a good choice. I do love Bristol. So could you just tell us a little bit about what a typical day of work looks like for you and how you balance your academics and your clinical work? Yeah, so I have I have sort of clinic day, clinical days and um, university days. They're not, it's, it's very difficult to completely separate the two because sometimes I have to be on the wards attending. Um, for very sometimes I do a little bit of general paediatrics still mm -hmm. um, you may or may not know um, so I do a little bit of general paediatrics where you're basically fully committed to doing the uh, acute paediatrics but I kind of do it because I think I'm the last university doctor doing it so um, uh, for general paediatrics so I think the presence there is quite nice because a few of the medical students get to see somebody from the university on the wards mm -hmm. um, actually doing a bit of general paediatrics but the other attending I do is 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 really for for my own firm. Uh, um, so, so some weeks is a bit more difficult, but mostly I try to concentrate my clinic days into. I do clinics all day on Thursday, and I do some clinics on a Tuesday and some clinics on a Wednesday, which kind of frees up. Usually Wednesday afternoon and Monday and Thursday for um, uh, for university work, and. Doing that kind kind of means that you can separate the days. Although um, I do tend to work from within the children's hospital all the time. My office is there, mm -hmm. and I find it easier being um, actually at the hospital site rather than say working from home. I'm finding it uh, difficult working uh, more difficult working from home now with the COVID crisis. Sure. So basically, I separate those two, and um, and so my clinical work is within my department, and my research work is is mainly is mainly clinical work now because I work in the biomedical research centre, and so we do lots of little studies on feasibility work, you know, looking at diet. In so I've got PhD students looking at dietary changes in cystic fibrosis-related diabetes mm -hmm. to see if we can improve glycemic control. I've got another PhD who's working on um, uh, familial hypercholesterolemia and whether diet and activity can Im further improve the reduction you get with statin therapy because we treat children with statins now from the age of 10. Wow. And one of the clinics I do is a lipid clinic. And I've got another PhD student looking at um, factors involved in appetite control and appetite regulation, but she's just done a, a, a review of the patients who failed to lose weight in my um, weight management clinic to see if uh, what, we're, what we're not doing for them that we appear to be doing for about 60% of our patients lose significant amounts of body mass index. And, and therefore about 40% don't. So it's trying to find out what they need in addition. So she's doing some work on that whilst working on various aspects of appetite, like portion size control. Mm -hmm. 
and then I, you know, I do occasionally. Um, I we do we do do some work on uh, fat cells, adipocytes in in the laboratory, and I've just had a a PhD student finish this year looking at um, how IGF-2, insulin growth factor 2, affects um, fat acquisition in visceral and subcutaneous adipocytes, because we know that the two different types of adipocyte work in slightly different ways. So subcutaneous adipocytes, on, whilst, whilst you know, they, 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 make, they are part of fat, they're not metabolically very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Whereas visceral fat cells, that's your tummy fat, that's the fat around your intestines, uh, they are that's really quite metabolically active and rather more dangerous in yeah. terms of diabetes risk and everything, as you know. Uh, and actually, IGF two does seem to have an effect. So the the effect of IGF two seems to preferentially um, deposit allow the body to deposit fat cells in the safer subcutaneous uh, regions rather than the the visceral regions. We've never really known why IGF-2 continues to be an active hormone in mm. humans, because in things like mice and stuff, the IGF-2 levels involved in it, a lot in fetal development, both in mice and humans. But in mice, it, it drops to almost negligible levels after weaning, but in humans, it stays very high. Interesting. The findings of this PhD student was it may, it may be one of the reasons, there may be lots of other reasons, of course, but one of the reasons may be because it... Uh, um, it, it regulates fat deposition in the different uh, compartments of the body and higher levels seem to favour more subcutaneous fat uh, development, which is probably safer. Mm-hmm. But we know that the IGF, we know that IGF-2 is, is, is one of the genes that's involved in, in, in obesity and fat deposition and type 2 diabetes risk. So that kind of makes sense. Yeah. It was nice to find some putative cause. And then... Yeah, we've got a couple more PhD students starting when COVID-19 mm. <laughs> finishes. And that, that's really with Denise Atan, who's the, the lead um, clinician on those, who's an ophthalmologist, looking at things that we see um, in relationships. So one of them's looking at um, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which is a problem associated with um, um, being too heavy, but often associated with being female, so it's mainly seen in females, mm-hmm. uh, and trying to look to see how the different drugs you can use modulate appetite and see if it actually has an influence through appetite as well as changing the CSF flow. And hopefully that that uh, young lady will be able to start when, when she can actually start some clinical work, yeah. so that's very difficult at the moment. And then putatively we've got... Um, Again, with Denise Atten, another PhD student starting, who will be looking at, um, yeah, insulin resistance and myopia, which is uh, might have some sorts of links. So those sorts of things, yeah, we we have lots of PhD students we have to keep up with, and um, then we um, then the other things we do is we sort of try and plan sort of you know other dietary interventions and look at. I do quite a lot of work now with NHS England looking at how we're going to run obesity services for children across the country. Um, and so there's lots of things. Lots yeah, of sounds like you're a busy man. <laughs> Busy-ish, not quite so busy with COVID-19 now. So. <gasps> bit of time to reset. So could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about your work with childhood obesity and uh, metabolic health and why you decided to go into it? 
because I mean that's why I know you um in terms of your work because I sat in with you on one of your childhood obesity clinics in the children's hospital and I've also watched your um documentary that you featured on on channel 4 the 100 kilo kids so just tell us a that was Channel 4's title, I, wasn't it? I assumed that. I assumed that much. <laughs> we weren't too keen on that title, but nevertheless. Um, How did you get into it? Why is it important? It was a very long time ago, actually. We started running the obesity clinic in about, about 1999. Right. And the reason was because there were increasing numbers of heavy children, and we were being asked by the general practitioners if, they could see, if we could see patients to see if they had a hormonal problem causing their weight problems. And as you know, that if you're hypothyroid, you put on weight, and there's a couple of other very rare conditions in childhood. Um, Cushing syndrome is much more common in adults, but Cushing syndrome makes you put on weight, and there's a condition called pseudohyperparathyroidism, which can be associated with weight gain. So we were being asked to see a lot of... But of course, as you might have guessed, none of these children really had well, very, 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 very few children actually had a hormone problem. Mm. But they had obviously had major problems with their, their weight. And so I thought, rather than just say, well, they haven't got a hormone problem and discharge them, um, we ought to try and do a little bit more for them. Um, I didn't really know what I was getting myself in for because I just thought it was pretty simple to tell them to eat their food and do more exercise. Um, <laughs> and we started with that, and really, it wasn't that wasn't particularly great. And then, um, so we started with a dietitian and a registrar I had, who's now uh, associate professor in Melbourne, and um, doing a, he's a pediatric endocrinologist, um, just basically telling people to eat a bit less and do more exercise. But then we sort of developed a bit more. We had an MSc student come down from the university's Department of Exercise, Nutrition and Health, and um, they did an MSc with us on a subject related to that. And then the guy whose name is Riaz Jamal, he wanted to stay. And so he, he was a sports coach, but he devoted some of his time to helping us in our clinic. And that was the sort of first multidisciplinary clinic. It, was a, it wasn't really multidisciplinary, it was more it was more what, 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 what we had, but it was an mm-hmm. exercise specialist and a dietitian and a couple of doctors who were interested. And then about um, pushed on by basically things like commissioning. I mean, uh, for a long time, I ran it as a, a research clinic. It was funded effectively mainly by research funds, but um, I didn't have it at that. At some stage, I didn't really have any active research in clinical obesity management and so the crunch came and so we decided we'd try and develop a rather better multidisciplinary team so um, a doctor who now works in um, student health came and worked with us for a while called Dr Sarah Owen and she was an academic GP trainee and she came and worked in my clinic for a little bit and did some qualitative research on uh, this was many years ago now, about sort of ten years ago, um, on what patients found helpful and what didn't, what they didn't find helpful, and that gave us some ideas about how to change the structure. But I wasn't able to really make those changes until we got some proper formal funding from NHS England and the CCG, uh, and so we developed, I sort of developed a new sort of clinic, um, whereby we now have 
two clinicians, um, both consultants. We have uh, um, our dietitian from the from who's been with me for years and years and years. Is that Anna? No, Anna's not been with us for so long. That's um, somebody called Shelley Easter. Okay. And Anna's an additional uh, dietitian we've had, but Anna's worked with me on diabetes for a long time. Yeah, she wrote a fantastic blog for us for our website. She's great. Oh, that's good. Yeah, she's Mm. very interested in in healthy eating, as you know. Um, And then we also had um, uh, the additional members of the team above the dietetic support was uh, a psychologist, a psychologist specialised in children. Um, and we also have a social worker, which, uh, and then the final component, which has really been very valuable, is Melanie Wen, who's our, um, di- our obesity specialist nurse, who kind of links and holds everything together. Mm-hmm. So, um, we now have, as I say, we have a specialist nurse who can do a lot of the link work and a lot of the helping the families. We have a psychologist who can deal with a lot of the children have eating problems or their parents have eating problems. Um, and eating like binge eating and stuff like that or issues with food. So that's very helpful. Our social workers are very important because she can help people to access uh, things that doctors know nothing about at all, like getting... You know, making sure people can get to the clinic and stuff when they don't have any money. And all those, that integrated approach has sort of led to a much more, I would say, holistic um, clinic. And I don't really think the doctors do that much. I mean, we exclude the fact that they don't have any hormone problems. And, and yeah, there are some children who occasionally have a hormone problem. There's some children who have genetic problems associated with appetite control, as you know, MC4R mutations and POMC mutations, which are mutations in genes that uh, regulate appetite in the hypothalamus, those will lead to increased weight gain. Um, so we have a few children with genetic problems, few, very few children with hormone problems, but occasionally. And then we have quite a lot of children with significant behavioural problems, so autistic, autism yeah. spectrum disorder, children with uh, unknown syndromes. Um, I mean, we've all heard of Prader-Willi syndrome and know that that has a problem that those children have a problem with the voracious appetites but there are lots of other conditions which don't have that sort of signature and don't have that uh, you know chromosomal abnormality or genetic abnormality who we don't quite know what's going on but they definitely have developmental anomalies abnormal appetites and uh, other associated learning difficulties so that's a significant amount of our clinic right and so could you just tell our listeners in really simple terms, what are some of the hormone problems that uh, children can have that can lead them to having an increased appetite? Well, these aren't so much hormone problems. So the, 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 the classical problem associated with excess weight gain, as I say, are, are you know, hypothyroidism. Mm. So we check all the children to check they're not hypothyroid, but we very rarely, I mean, there have been cases we've picked up, I mean, it hasn't been recognised before, but that's very, very unusual. And the other thing we do worry about is Cushing syndrome. Mm-hmm. That's very unusual in children, and again, that can be ruled out quite quickly with a couple of, you know, specific endocrine tests. Then when you have that, then it's not so much the endocrine test, it's more to do with um, uh, probably unrecognised syndromes that are associated 
with obesity um, that are all to do with appetite regulation. Nearly all the genetic conditions mm. so far identified are related to appetite control. And <coughs> these children tend to have very, um, very uh, abnormal appetites. So they basically will ask for food immediately after they've eaten. Right. They'll, ask about, they'll ask about food in between meals. They'll get very vexed if they're prevented from eating what they want. And in fact, one of those patients was on that program you saw. Yes, the little girl. A, the, yeah, I forget her name, the four-year-old. She had a malacortin 4 receptor mutation. Mm, and she's, her mum said she was eating frozen sausages from the, from the freezer, which just highlights... Yeah, we, Mm. We hear that, we hear that, and we hear about children who eat food out of the bins if they're not allowed. Wow. Um, and they'll eat anything, yes, they eat frozen sausages, well, you know, raw sausages, raw meat. Their appetite is very, and, 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 and these children often, parents often describe them as wanting to talk about food all the time. So right. as soon as they've eaten, even if they don't want to eat straight away, they want to know where the next meal is what's planned for the next meal, what are they going to have for the next meal. And they tend really never to be truly satisfied um, mm. however much they eat. So consequently, they're very difficult for the parents. It's very difficult for the parents. It's really difficult for us. Mm-hmm. And yet there are sort of drugs being designed now to help work with these. And, and so there is a drug um, now in testing stage, I still say, for people with POMC mutations, as pro-opioid melanocortin mutations, uh, and basically that drug C may, in some of the patients, significantly reduce their appetite. And the, and the, the old classical one are those who had uh, a mutation in the leptin gene, yeah. you can make leptin, and um, they had recombinant leptin injections and that resulted in them being satiated and losing a lot of weight so that was the classic one everyone kind of hoped that everything was going to move on from leptin mutations but i can't remember how many years those mm. were 20 odd years ago now mm-hmm. uh, and only now is the second drug designer type drug coming um uh becoming available and that's called setmelanotide and um there probably will be some other drugs, and so lots of and lots of companies are interested in this. But there, ha- but identifying the genetic problem hasn't completely solved the problem for the families and the patients. And this is for adults as well. Obviously, they have the mutations forever because there haven't been that many designer or you know specific drugs made yet. But the hope is there will be. And in the documentary, it looks like you work quite closely with the genetic lab in Cambridge. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've worked with um, Professor Sir Steve O'Rahilly mm-hmm. and um, uh, Professor Sir Dafaruki on and off now for 20 years, really, more or less since we started the clinic. There was a, 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 a research study called The Genetics of Simple Obesity, which um, we sort of contributed huge numbers of patients to, which is where where um, many of the uh, genes identified causing monogenic 
you know, monogenic obesity as opposed to polygenic obesity were identified. So, um, yes, yeah, so we, we've had a very strong link with them for about 20 years. Um, that was all research-based, but recently the genetics... The genetic panel for this has been moved into the NHS. Right. Uh, it's an NHS service. And, you know, the the cost of the genetic tests are not that costly, but we have to be a bit more selective now about who we send mm-hmm. uh, for genetic testing, whereas initially I more or less sent everybody who had... It was a fantastic service, so we were able to identify things we probably didn't suspect would have had it would have had a single gene mutation because we were sort of ubiquitously screening them effectively. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite what Cambridge thought we were doing. They wanted us to select people we thought most likely. But I thought uh, whilst we had the opportunity to get um, free tests, it seems uh, <laughs> sensible to uh, mm-hmm. try and send as many as we could. I've got Dr. Giles Yeo coming on the podcast this afternoon, actually. Yeah, well, he's he's also very famous within that field. Exactly. Uh, I, I haven't worked so closely with him. As good, I think he must have come on the scene. It's just that I worked with the people who were originally sure. there, which was Professor O'Reilly and uh, Professor Faruqi. But, yes, he gives a very good talk. He's very amusing. And he's very, very charismatic. Chat. And he's actually, yeah. he travelled all the way to uh, Nutritank St Andrew's branch in Scotland to give a talk, which we were really yeah. appreciative of. So, yeah, the med students really love him. Yeah, he'll give you a very good talk. Very, very <laughs> so you've told our listeners a lot about the pharmaceutical interventions when it comes to childhood obesity, and you've kind of demonstrated that it's quite a small proportion of them that actually have the underlying cause in something medical or genetic. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you work with your multidisciplinary team to actually deal with the child and their family at hand when there is no underlying medical cause per se, but it really is an environmental problem? Yeah, well, we have, um, I would say just to put that in context, maybe four to five percent of our patients will have some underlying genetic problem. And then we, for the rest of the population, a lot of them, as I say, what we've noticed is as we've dealt with more and more severe um, issues, um, so people with very significant weight gain, we tend to now target those who've got complications of obesity or those who've got very severe obesity. We're finding that a a significant proportion have autism spectrum disorder or other behavioral anomalies. which does mean that uh, it can be quite complex to work out what's going on and sometimes occasionally it is almost impossible for the family to affect changes but what we tend to do is you just tend to work basically initially on re-education trying to get people to eat regularly but not in between meals guide them towards more less energy sorry to guide them towards less energy dense food try and make more sensible choices, eat more vegetables, uh, try and fill up the meal with things that are less energy dense than, than perhaps they were starting on. And sometimes that just works. I mean, mm. sometimes that's all the family needs. They just need that encouragement. Um, if that tends not to work, and because we can help them with the other psychologists dealing with the issues of boredom eating, you know, lots of people when they're a bit bored eat um, and therefore maybe trying to change their behaviors towards food in between meals um and if that doesn't work then then we 
do use meal replacement therapies because I think lots of our families and lots of the, especially the adolescents we deal with, have kind of given up hope. They think they're everything. Mm-hmm. They've, they've heard it all before. Um, um, sometimes they've tried everything before. Sometimes I'm not sure they have tried it very hard. And so sometimes it's just motivate. So a lot about a lot of this is about self. It's about motivation to change. And so the idea behind the clinic is, and this is why I've said that doctors are not that important for most of the patients. Okay, so occasionally a doctor might be the person who's the motivator, motivator uh, behind a family or a, a person's wish to change weight. But often it's much more to do with the multidisciplinary team working together to try and get, what you need to do is you need to apportion responsibility back onto the family uh, or back onto the individual if it's a if it's an adolescent, especially especially an older adolescent, so that they become the major change maker. And so, what you need to do is you need to give them a self, a, you know, a self worth. So a lot of it's about self worth and trying to get them into a position where they're able to affect changes themselves. Because when it comes down to it, obesity management isn't really about what doctors can do because we don't like using drugs there aren't very many drugs that are safe anyway except for very specific situations um for the majority of the patients they have to affect these changes themselves and so and um, as i said we were just one of my phd students is, is looking at this and you know she's pointed out that we don't use self-determination theory very much self-determination is all about grabbing back yourself your self-efficacy and your ability to to make things happen yourself motivate your changes within yourself mm-hmm. and why you want to do them making certain changes goal setting and stuff and perhaps that's where our next intervention will be to those families that don't quite respond to what we're doing at the moment because some families as i say about 58 60 percent of them do respond to what we're doing at the moment what, what's going on with the other 40 percent so it's really a, a mix. It's, it's it's the whole team. So it's we set goals. We ask them to lose a certain amount of weight. We never talk about you know we, we're dealing with very heavy uh, young people. So we're not we're not really interested in people growing into their weight. You hear about you know for you know general population the children grow they if they don't gain weight if they grow taller obviously their BMI improves. But for the children we see we're, we're dealing with children with BMIs of fifty sixty. You've got comorbidities. You know, they've actually got active medical disease associated with their uh, weight problems. Mm-hmm. And in those sorts of cases, you really do actually have to lose weight. And so we're setting them goals on losing kilograms and kilograms of weight over a certain period, uh, and trying to get yeah. You know, and when they get stuck and when they can't go any further, we try and give them extra motivators. And then if that doesn't work, then we start using meal replacement therapy. So basically, reducing the amount of calories they're having through um, meal replacement treatment. And is that them as an outpatient having meal replacements, or is that them as an inpatient? Very, very occasionally, we do bring people in, Mm -hmm. uh, and then we actually monitor exactly what they get, um, and we make sure they get what they're meant to get for their. Well, basically, what you tend to do is say, what's their sort of recommended daily allowance of calories and just reduce it by a couple of hundred calories which does always seem to get the family these children to lose weight when in hospital which perhaps tells you something about 
boundary setting and stuff at home. But once families have actually sometimes learnt really how you can lose weight through that boundary setting and actually saying this is what you're going to have. Some families adopt that quite well. Occasionally we do have children who come in, you know, we had a child come in from another hospital in the southwest who was going to have an emergency tracheostomy because their um, sleep apnea was so bad they were desaturating to, you know, 40% mm -hmm. about 150, 200 times a night. Um, and that's really profound and so that they thought they couldn't sort it out anyway because they weren't responding to the standard BiPAP and stuff but um, in fact with very strict dietary limitations that young lad lost huge amounts of weight and uh, whilst he still needs a little bit of overnight uh, respiratory support um, he it's not desaturating at all now so mm. sometimes just getting the parents on board to believe that you can do that and it wasn't you know it's not the parents thought this child had quite significant learning difficulties but they didn't hadn't really learn how the boundaries of saying no and stuff and, yeah. and so how to do that and now is much much better that's really great to hear and it must put such a strain on the parents as well, because as I saw in the documentary, it can seem that sometimes the media could be a bit harsh um, to the parents, but it's really complicated, I guess, to set boundaries with your own child. And it, yeah, it I is, it's it is okay. mm. yeah. And occasionally some, very occasionally, some parents are just simply unable to do that. And we have had a, a very few instances where we've valid, tried everything else, weighed it all up, and after a couple of years of really not the parents, nor for whatever reason, not being able to set those boundaries, we've actually taken the children into foster care for a period of time with people who can set boundaries. It's not what the foster carers can't, sometimes can't, but you will find foster care families who can, and basically... I have to say the effect is as similar as having a, a bypass operation in adults in that the patient will lose 20, 25 points on BMI in a year. Goodness me, that's so drastic, wow. And what about the psychological impact that that can have on the child being displaced from their home environment? It's obviously medically doing good, but... The experience we've had, and we don't do it very often, is that the child improves hugely, actually. Wow. Well, because mm -hmm. children who are very heavy, who are in constant viewing because they're too heavy, who can't sleep at night because they're so heavy, who basically are ridiculed by every other child in the school, mm -hmm. as they lose weight, they gain continence, they improve their sleep pattern, they improve the, the longevity of their sleep, they're able to concentrate at school, and they're no longer bullied, and that's probably more important. And I think it is it is worth saying that children do need boundaries set by their parents. Yeah, you know, your parents can set far too strict boundaries sometimes, but this, these are these are children who don't have very many boundaries around food at all. Uh, and um, I think their 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 self worth actually improves. But mm -hmm. so, in the cases we've done it, we we've done this. We have we take very special care. And of course, this goes through case conferences and we have social work support and we have the legal support and all that sort of business but in those cases 
the children undoubtedly have benefited not just medically but psychologically from the weight loss they've achieved. And on a whole, how many children do you see whose parents have weight problems as well? Do you, are there cases where you meet children who have severe weight problems but their parents are fit and well and healthy? What's the spectrum like? Very, rare, very rarely do you see both parents being a normal weight. Yeah. So at least one parent will have weight issues and often it's two. If you see a child who's gaining weight in a family of where everybody else is thin, it does make you think that there might be some underlying abnormality in the hypothalamus or something else going on. So it makes you much more wary. But the reason for that also is because we very rarely see people like that. But if you do see someone like that, it's often giving you a hint that perhaps you ought to look a bit further into what's going on in a medical sense. And then this will be really helpful to medical students and training doctors who are listening in. How do you sensitively have the conversation with your patients about weight? And what's more, how do you sensitively have the conversation with the parents who've come in who aren't there for themselves, but you somehow have to get it across to them that this is a systemic thing within their family environment? It's probably easier for us because by the time they've got to see us, and they're coming to a weight management clinic in the children's hospital, which is known only to see people who are very heavy, who've got secondary comorbidities and stuff mm. like that. Um, it's probably not that hard to broach the subject of weight because when they come they in, they okay, know mm-hmm. why you're here. And mm. um, the vast majority of them say, yes, it's about our, it's about our weight. Um, and then we can have a full and frank conversation. I, I don't tend to use the word beast ever. But we do talk about excess weight and you're too heavy for your frame. And and um, when we talk about the centile charts and stuff, we do occasionally have to say, well, this puts you in the morbid obesity range. It depends how mm. you want it. But we often point that out to the parents, even if not the child. Broaching mm-hmm. um, in a more um, sort of... <coughs> regular way like as a general practitioner or somebody in a a different setting is difficult and we've done research on this with my primary care colleagues and a lot of gps feel it's it's quite difficult and if they bring it up in another subject for instance a general practitioner i know said that she actually got reported to the family practitioner committee by the parent because the child had bad asthma we know that obesity makes bad asthma worse um, uh, and she said well you really ought to your child ought to lose weight and the patient's attitude the family's attitude was we didn't come to talk about weight we came to talk mm. about the asthma without them really being able to link the two together I think I think things have I, I think things are changing and I do think it's really important that everybody and the government's encouraged this at every opportunity every medical point of contact that significant obesity has to be pointed out by the doctors or the nurses or the, or the medical students or whoever in a, in, a, in a way that's probably you don't use the word obese and you don't use the word really heavy or fat but you do use some sort of term and you go you know your child's weight is a problem and that's quite a good way of saying it you know so if a person comes with asthma which is not getting better on standard treatment or if a child's 
for instance, you know, incontinent or got abnormal liver function tests or for all these sorts of other things they can get, then saying your child's too heavy is is right and you have to say it. And there's no point in beating about the bush. If you know that obesity is contributing to a problem, um, there's no easy way of saying it, but mm-hmm. you have to say it. You you know and I think it's 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 people get very um, Parents get, we know this because we, we do a lot of qualitative surveys with them, but parents blame themselves for the fact their child's heavy. Um, and to some, to some extent, it is the parents, because they're the people who have been giving their child food. And you do have to accept that food is something that's provided by parents to younger people, at least, not to adults, obviously. That's a completely different issue. But when you come down to it, the family has to accept they have the major responsibility for their child's weight. It's not anybody else's mm-hmm. responsibility. It's not the state's responsibility. It's not advertisers' responsibility. It's not supermarkets' responsibility. It's effectively the responsibility of the parents. If you saw a child being given cigarettes by the parents, you'd think, oh, that's not right. And you'd probably step in and say, why are you giving your child cigarettes? That's not a sensible thing to do. It's dangerous. Or alcohol. You wouldn't want to see parents give their child alcohol. But we're quite happy in some respects to think, oh, well, that's not... We don't really want to talk about their child giving their... Parents giving their child too much food, which is perhaps not the right attitude. Obesity is a major health concern. It is a disease. And, you know, it probably is impacting on... You know, in adults, it's like it's impacting on the COVID nineteen outcomes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we have to accept that it's not healthy to be obese or very heavy, and so somebody has to take responsibility. And it's, <laughs> and I'm afraid it's the families who affect the changes, so they have to be really the factors of the change. Sure, and I completely get that, especially in the context of children whose um, food providers are their parents, but then don't you think there is somewhat of an issue with the food environment and those that come to your clinic of a lower socioeconomic status in that all they've known and all that they're available to do is, in terms of food accessibility, is make the cheaper choices, which are often unhealthy food and things that are bought in multi-packs, that are financially good for them to buy, so they're getting large quantities of things, but they're very energy-dense and nutrient-poor. So you have, to be, you have to be a bit careful about this. We did a study where we looked mm-hmm. at the, you know, whether it's, whether it's too costly to eat healthily. And actually for nine deciles of the population, so that's 90% of the population, it, eating more healthily, if the whole family adopt a healthy eating pack, actually isn't more costly for them. That's fascinating, okay? yeah. So for the lowest decile, for the very deprived, it probably is a little bit prohibitive. Um, and so we tend to change our dietetic advice based on, you know, exactly what, you know, what, what, what is possible for the family to afford. But I don't think that we can lay all the blame um, at, on on availability of healthy food. For instance, you know, there's this thing about making sure children have breakfast at schools. So there was a massive intervention done in, research study done in America where they made free food available for 
half the um, these were all schools who had very deprived uh, areas. Um, you know, was you know, well, basically the the, the, the the population they served were from deprived areas, and um, they had to. St- well, they eventually well, they didn't stop the study, but the, the end. What the study findings were that those schools that were providing the free breakfasts, which were healthy and nutritious, those children increased in weight compared to the children who didn't. So there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, about you know, what the causes are. Uh, and whilst deprivation has a major effect, we know that deprivation is socially patterned, obesity is socially patterned towards the more deprived areas. Um, it's just, it's, there's, there's more to it than just food, healthy food being too expensive. Because if it was just food being, you know, being food being too expensive, then every single person in the lowest decile would be very heavy, and that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to be a bit more nuanced about this. The food environment is poor sometimes, you know, but supermarkets really shouldn't be placing sweets next to the the, the, the tills and stuff like that. So I accept, and the way, and the way that uh, supermarkets position foods on a shelf definitely has a big impact on what people buy and so if they want something to be bought they put it about eye level if they don't particularly want to sell something they put it right at the bottom or right at the top so supermarkets are very clever about that but that's because they're making a profit from selling food and i don't think that you know that 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 we can work we should work with them to try and make healthy food at the eye level and stuff and so there are things you can do on the obesogenic environment but it's too easy uh to just say Mm -hmm. that healthy food is too costly because that's actually not the case for a, a significant majority of the populations we serve it's just making those sensible choices and it's not it's not it's not always cost that's actually the cause so i think we should be a bit too bit more careful about that because i do think people it's too easy it's too it's too simple to fall into that argument well if everyone had more money everyone wouldn't be heavy Mm. and i'm just not convinced that's the case yeah i I guess it's about finding the balance between not blaming the individual but also trying to find a way to change the environment to help the individuals within it. Yes, I totally agree. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, if you look at deprivation, deprivation maps directly onto the number of fast food shops in an area. So and that's what I was going to say next, where you're thinking about children and the social environments that they're in. If they come out of school and they all gather in the KFC right opposite their school and on their high street there's all different fast food chains kebab shops etc and no fresh fruit and vegetable stores then there is somewhat of a probing and priming aspect for them to maybe perhaps you know find that more food more accessible yeah but the way you, you can try and so that's a very that could be a very easy problem to solve that you know taxation on things like um energy dense takeaway should increase yeah. there's no doubt about it um that will stop so many of them opening. Mm-hmm. And certain health authorities have, or local authorities have actually made some big strides forward in that. 
So, for example, the one I always use, I, mean, I don't know, I don't think they do it in Bristol, but in Gateshead, you can't open a fast food shop if the uh, if the level of deprivation, sorry, the level of obesity in any ward uh-huh. is more than ten percent. So I asked the people in Gateshead, "Oh, are there places with less than ten percent?" They said no. So basically, they just don't open new fast food shops. And and so if we taxed these shops more, uh, uh, people would stop using them. Now that would have the effect, of course, of depriving those people of their income and we've got to think of the consequences of that so the people who work in fast food shops probably that's you know that's what they do and that's how they make their mm-hmm. money and that's how they keep their families but by taxing it you would stop people using it more but it would have consequences for those families and so lots of other things that i think would be sensible like taxing sugar containing foods more and taxing energy dense foods more and taxing um, fast, you know, take away fast food shops more would have implications for the economy, would have implications for families, would have implications. But I think it probably would be worthwhile overall to do to reduce the cost to the NHS of basically obesity through the lifespan. But, you know, these things do have consequences. And, and when it comes back to it, the only people who can make the changes are the family in which the child sits. Mm-hmm. And so it seems too simple just to go around trying to change the environment. We can try and change the environment, we can make big changes, but when it comes down to it, for the children we're dealing with is the family has to make the changes. And society's not going to change very quickly. And even if you started taxing things like junk food shops and various things a lot, they're not going to change very, very quickly. And the government will be very slow in bringing those sorts of things in because it will have economic implications mm-hmm. for those people working in that industry uh, so when I come back to it you do have to come when it comes yeah. down to it you have to deal with the family who's in front of you and you can't I you know you can you can vouch or vocate you can you can suggest policy changes which I regularly do um, but that's not going to help that family in that the situation in where I am and so it's, it's a different scenario. So when you're dealing with population health, yes, socio, socioeconomic factors and government policy and taxation can all be used to great effect. But when you're dealing with a family, it's the family who has to make the changes and that's where it's at, really. It's very nuanced, as you describe, and unbelievably multifaceted. So I think it's a debate that could go on for ages, but... Um, yeah, really interesting points. So you've brought up a few conditions like sleep apnea, asthma. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what comorbidities can present with childhood obesity and what the medical implications are of um, being overweight? Yeah, okay. So we see a lot of children with um, um, sleep apnea type problems mm-hmm. um, and poor sleep and lack of concentration. The ones we tend, the patients we tend to see are actually having really quite significant sleep apnea, which is leading to multiple desaturations, as I said, down to really quite low levels of oxygen saturation, which if it continues, um, will lead to pulmonary hypertension, will lead to Mm -hmm. significant problems. And and, yeah, there's a lot of evidence that sleep apnea also leads to more increasing insulin resistance and 
and therefore your risk of type 2 diabetes goes up. We're now seeing young people with type 2 diabetes, as you're aware. A lot of the children we see um, have abnormal liver function tests. A lot of children we see have um, uh, orthopedic problems like slip capital epiphyses, which are directly related in the main uh, to excess weight, more common in boys, but they are seeing more girls with it mm. now because of excess weight. Um, idiopathic intracranial hypertension we see quite a lot now, which is a it's a basically raised intracranial pressure with sight th- it's sight threatening, but it's not related to having a, a lesion inside your brain. Nobody quite knows what what causes it actually, but it's, it's more common in females, so perhaps estrogen may have some effect as well. But basically, the, the, the method of treatment for sleep apnea, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, uh, the hepatitis associated with fatty liver disease, type 2 diabetes, all of these conditions, slip, everything we've mentioned is significant weight loss. So um, weight loss is the answer to all, all of these problems are uh, improved by weight loss. Sure. And also, um, as I saw in the documentary, going under anaesthetics and having a surgery, is that also a bit of a uh, risk when you are overweight? Well, as you know, I'm not an anaesthetist. <laughs> yeah, being, over, being overweight is a problem, and you can be so overweight that anaesthetists don't want to uh, anaesthetise you. So those people, as well as having bariatric surgery, can be too heavy for bariatric surgery, so they have to lose weight sometimes beforehand. We have had patients who have been um, so heavy that people have not wanted to do cardiac operations, so revisions to cardiac problems, and they they felt that the risk, the risk of uh, the level of obesity mm-hmm. with the complexity of the cardiac surgery wasn't wasn't a good risk. You know, balance at the time, so they wanted sure. us to get the patients to lose weight beforehand. But yeah, if you have a slip capital epiphysis and you're heavy, you, you need to have that operated on or you'll lose your hip. So, you know, the anaesthetists do a sterling job and they're, and they're very good at doing this. I mean, you know, anaesthetists become very good at looking after um, managing anaesthetics for obese people, but um, it's something you prefer not to do. Sure. And so you've been in this field for quite a long time and as you've said you've seen more and more children developing type 2 diabetes which i'm sure wasn't really around 20 odd years ago or more what what is a big question but we've discussed some of the factors but why do you think this is on the rise well i think i mean i think that if you're going to get type yeah i think type 2 diabetes is quite a genetic condition i mean what we learned at school, well, I think I don't think I even learned this at school, but I think I've looked at the A-levels and O-level things, which basically suggest that type 2 diabetes is a disease of, um, a societal disease, and type 1 diabetes is an inherited disease. That's not really the case. Type 2 diabetes is highly inheritable, and all the families where children get type 2 diabetes have a very strong family history of type 2 diabetes as well. Um, so I think what's happened is it's not, it's not, anything the genes obviously haven't changed and what's happened is that as children are getting uh, heavier much earlier on mm. you're basically seeing a, it's like an accelerator effect of, of significant obesity from a very early age acting upon a genetically predisposed person already uh, to mean that the disease occurs at a much earlier age so maybe the grandparents got diabetes type 2 diabetes when they were 60 
their parents get it when they're 35, 40. Now the children are getting it when they're 13 and 15. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So compared to when you were growing up to how children are growing up now, how do you think that boundary setting and attitudes toward food and its accessibility have changed? Um, yeah, okay, so I grew up a very long time ago, as you know, but um, I think when I was young, food was served at meal times, and th- there weren't all these shops available where you could buy it. Um, I mean, fish and chips was about the only thing you could buy from a takeaway because there weren't very many Indian takeaways. That was very exotic. It was pretty exotic to find a Chinese takeaway in your whole town. So ready accessible, mm-hmm. ready-made food just wasn't available. People expected it to come from, um, you know, the home. Um, I think that um, there were sweets and things, but they weren't. That was like a special treat on a Saturday, yeah. really. And then um, I think boundary setting probably one could argue it was a bit more severe when I was young. I think boundary setting was perhaps a bit too severe when I was young, but boundary setting was what you lived with. You went, you know, it was school was boundary setting, home was boundary setting, and you just didn't have, um, there wasn't food, there there weren't, there just wasn't that much available to snack in in between. Mm. There weren't, there were biscuits and cakes, I suppose, but I, I I don't remember really seeing them very often. And do you think people cooked from scratch more and there was less ready-made meals and, like you mentioned, snacks, it all had to be freshly made, really, the cakes and the biscuits? I think I think that the, the number of snacks now are enormous compared to um, when, when I was young. They're, and, and they're so much more palatable as well. I don't think I... I remember them being particularly pleasant anyway, but um, <laughs> I, I, I think they've found ways of making, I think the food industry, I mean, you know, we, we should recognise the food industry as a profit-making um, organisation and the food industry has managed to make things that more or less would appeal to everybody. So, yeah, everyone can find something they can snack on if, if they want. Um, so... I think things have changed hugely. I mean, I have to agree, the food environment has incredibly changed. The only thing that perhaps hasn't changed too much, even when I was a junior doctor, I remember there were always being chocolates on the nurse's uh, station available at all times when you were on at night. And I remember eating those. (laughs) But I I, I think from when I was young, I think things have changed enormously. But you've got to remember, I was growing up in the 70s. Mm -hmm. That's not really... It was a very different time then, 1970s. There was, there was just a lot of general, it was just a miserable time to grow up, I think. But um, it was very, very different. Sure. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about your involvement in the documentary I've mentioned um, that was on Channel 4, 100 Kilo Kids? Um, well, yeah, over the years, um, Child's Obesity or Beasties was to become a fascination to the media. And we tend to turn down nearly all... We have an offer a month to make a programme in our clinic. Um, And the vast majority of cases, we get no further than me saying no. Um, However, the producers to this programme seemed a bit more willing 
to actually talk about the overall issues related to um, obesity in childhood and a little bit less on the sort of personal they want the, the, the company the, the, all these documentaries want these personalized stories mm. um, it was a huge amount of work for us it took it was it made the clinics very difficult to manage and it put all of us in very uncomfortable situations at times um, and I think that's probably the last documentary we'll make for another five six years sure. at, at the minimum um, we've had a further offers from various other companies afterwards I, but we've had a lot from before and I, I have occasionally made programs um, I made a program uh, with I think he's a celebrity is somebody called Gok Wan <laughs> Yes. Um, who, who, but he was interesting because he he was very heavy when he, he wouldn't mind me saying this because he, he talks about it in his documentary. He was very heavy as a child, and actually his parents, I think, were around a Chinese restaurant or a Chinese takeaway. And he he wanted to deal with his issues around food himself, and he wanted to explore childhood obesity as a personal thing as well as making an interesting documentary. And so we made a program with him, but I do tend to avoid most of these but it's all done with the uh, permission of the trust and it's also done with permission of the families i mean the, some of the families are startling they will uh, agree to things and they saw the documentary before it went out and they were happy for it to go out so um but it's not something i particularly enjoy and it's not something i would recommend people do on a regular basis sure that is understandable, but it was it was very interesting to watch, um, I must say, and I'll link it into the show notes for you listeners to have a look at. So, um, starting to wrap up, could I just ask your opinion? You know I'm very interested in nutrition as a medical student. What are your views on nutrition being taught more in medical training? Oh, I think it's vitally important, and I think that I think Bristol's doing a much better job than lots of other universities. But uh, um, I think it's fair to say that nutrition is at the centre of lots of the chronic diseases. I mean, we know, obviously we'll be discussing obesity, we've been discussing um, type 2 diabetes, but it's also obesity related to many other conditions like cancer in adult life, liver disease and stuff. And... Uh, poor nutrition, um, the post and mal. Yeah, if you say, if you say, I mean, malnutrition just be bad nutrition. But if you say malnutrition is a lack of food, that's something that inf- that affects a, an enormous part of the world. But probably not this country, in that there's not uh, just an mm-hmm. absolute lack of food. So we need to understand on a global basis what a complete lack of food and how to make food available for those populations who are significantly malnourished in that they just don't have any food to eat. So that needs to be addressed. But secondarily, we need to know a lot more about malnourishment or malnutrition in terms of bad food. And I don't think doctors are very good at it, really, because we don't get any training. So when I was in medical school, um, I don't think we got any training. I think you got taught how proteins fats and glucose and sugars were were ingested absorbed into the body and where they went and that was it and i think that was a physiology lecture and that was about Mm -hmm. it um 
But uh, if we are going to be able to counsel people in various... And, and if you think about all these specialties that we've discussed, orthopaedics, um, respiratory medicine, liver medicine, general practice, paediatrics, neurology for idiopathic intracranial hypertension, ophthalmology, because they had to deal with the site threatening problems, all those clinicians should be able to say something about you should lose some weight, and this is how I suggest you lose some weight. Obviously, we can rely on our dietitians, but dietitians are not ubiquitous. You know, the children's hospital is very lucky to have quite to be relatively well staffed compared to adult medicine in terms of dietetic. Uh, and and general practitioners don't have that facility really at all. Community dietitians are very few and far between. So it's going to be up to the doctors to make those at least some semblance of sensible suggestions about healthy eating. Uh, and, um, well, so we're not really well kitted out. I think Bristol's mm. moving a bit towards that. But I have spoken to people from other universities, which I think get even less nutrition um, education than Bristol does, and Bristol doesn't get enough. Um, I'm not saying that doctors need to be dietitians, and don't get me wrong here, I'm not banging a thing and saying that you know, we should have a whole you know, vertical theme across the whole thing about nutrition, but doctors should be able to say something sensible about how to adopt a healthy diet, how many vegetables you should be eating, what the fuck, what's the problem with the five a day if all you drink is smoothies with lots of things, which is not really five a day at all. You know, the, the ethos behind the five a day was trying, trying to encourage people to eat vegetables and a bit of fruit. We don't have a huge vitamin C deficiency problem in this country, but we do have a lot of excess food problems in this country. So people need to be able to make sensible comments and make to people who are struggling with their weight and as 30 to 40 percent of the population do struggle with their weight in this country you can't say it's a, a bit of a niche speciality it should be something that everyone should talk something about so um yes i i, I very much encourage extra nutrition or increased nutrition training in medical special in medicine and probably in dentistry if you think about it because one of the major problems with dentistry is, is the loss of teeth due to poor diet in, mm. in, in young people and and so again it's kind of incumbent on us to know enough about it where we can make some sensible suggestions i'm not saying we all need to become dietitians we don't need to deal with the specialist diets and all those sorts of things but healthy nutrition and what we should be eating and how many calories people should be consuming a day should be something that a doctor can talk about and not feel like oh god i have to go and look that up Exactly. It should definitely be part of our skills and competencies and be another tool in our toolbox when we're discussing uh, lifestyle changes or other interventions with patients. And very interestingly, I've just worked on a paper um, with a professor in Cambridge called Professor Samantha Ray, and it was looking at how medical students and doctors don't feel confident when they're um, in a position to give nutrition advice. And uh, the NutriTank team, so myself, my co-founder Ian Broadley and others, we collected a lot of qualitative data from medical students across the country and junior doctors. And it all came back essentially saying that it wasn't due to a lack of time 
um, that they weren't able to broach the subject around nutrition and weight. It was mainly due to a lack of confidence that they didn't feel comfortable in suggesting things around diet and weight management because they didn't have the training themselves. And so yeah. that's quite telling and shows that it really is time for this type of education to be filtered into medical training. And I agree with you, doctors should not be dietitians, but we should learn how to uh, refer appropriately to them and to signpost patients and put them on a reasonable trajectory in helping them adapt to a healthier diet. And yeah, and, a, yeah. and the other thing is dietitians you know, can deal with all the, you know, like those inborn errors of metabolism Mm. that I used to deal with and stuff. So these rare conditions where you can't deal with specific amino acids and stuff, then that's the dietitian's job and, and they're very capable of doing it. But this is just general I mean, you know, this is this is general like all the fitness instructors and everything know how to do it. So we should at least be as good as them because we get a specific medical training. So <laughs> I don't think there's an excuse for not having any knowledge at all. Agreed right there. And um, earlier you spoke about how boredom eating is one of the things you try and counsel people on. Um, so eating between meals due to a lack, uh, due to a lack of stimulation. Um, so how do you think COVID-19 is impacting people with boredom eating? Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But one can only imagine that things are going to get bigger. <laughs> In general, I just can't see that the COVID crisis is done, is going to do anything for the levels of obesity and overweight in this country in general. I think it's quite likely to have had quite a negative impact. I don't know. Make an interesting study. I, you probably take her, go to go to primary care and and look at the previous weights for number of patients. Actually, you give me an idea there. So maybe that's something you could do. But <laughs> the idea would be. The, the idea would be that, that basically with the, um, I don't think exercise has a huge, I think exercise is very important for metabolic health. I don't think it has a huge impact on weight. So I think the lack of exercise probably isn't the major problem. But people have been, will be much more sedentary and sedentary behaviour leads to overeating and overeating leads to excess weight. So I can't imagine that the uh, social distancing and the staying at home has done anything positive for the weight of the nation. I, I, I imagine it's the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that exercise is important for metabolic health, but doesn't have as great an impact on weight management. So would you say that you agree with the statement, you can't outrun a bad diet? I, I think that's definitely true. I, I, I think that, you know, going back many years ago, there were lots of exercise in, in, interventions, basically talking about using exercise interventions the trouble is you have to do so much exercise to burn off calories uh, and the example I've always used and I still use in my talks is you know it was a red Leicester cheese sandwich which is 562 calories and uh, how long do you have to skip continuously to get rid of it an hour and 45 minutes so it's it is impossible in this you can't outrun it that's quite a good one. I think I have heard that before, but yes, I totally agree. I think exercise is hugely important for um, preventing diabetes um, and for improving diet glycemic control. There's no doubt about that. However, if you're just talking about pure weight loss, it's not the exercise that's going to do it. It's eating less calories. Sure. And um, one final thing about your work before we wrap up. 
You mentioned one of your PhD students that was looking at uh, the satiety hormone levels. And I remember you telling me a while back when I was in clinic with you about your functional MRI studies looking at um, visuals around food and putting people in the scanner to see their emotive and neurological response to foods. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Well, just, yes, just, I mean, very quickly, I mean, without going into too much detail, there's a lot of evidence that if you eat food more slowly, then actually you can learn better to appreciate your sense of satiety or fullness. And if you do studies where you look at some of the things like hormonal responses, like the rises of ghrelin, which is your food-searching hormone, really, uh, which it comes from your stomach when it's empty, and you'll find that a much slower rise in your ghrelin post-meal if you eat it slowly, even if you eat, consume the same amount of calories. And also, if you learn to eat your food more slowly, probably it changes the way your brain responds to food. So there's certain simple things you can do, although it's not that simple to eat more slowly, but eating more slowly seems to have an effect on not only your hormonal responses to that meal, but also on the way your brain responds to that meal, in that your brain becomes better able to remember what it's had and therefore gets less, there's less attention towards food after that meal than there is if you've gobbled it up really quickly. Because if you gobble it up really quickly, you don't get these proper hormone responses. Your growth levels go up very quickly afterwards. Mm-hmm. And your, your neural, your cognitive function seems to be addressed towards getting food again. So we eat food too. And, and the same thing is true. And I don't like the word mindfulness in this context, but mindful eating, i.e. sitting down and eating and concentrating what you're doing rather than eating in front of a computer and stuff, that probably seems to have the same sorts of effects. So there's certain things that people can do. Don't eat in front of the television. Don't eat in front of a computer. Mm. We're sure doctors do because they haven't got any time, but we shouldn't do it but also try to eat your meal more slowly. These sort of basic behavioural changes can actually have quite a profound effect on how many calories you eat in a day if you can train your body to train yourself to do it regularly. Yeah, no, I can absolutely imagine that, especially with screen time and eating, because if you think, for instance, when you go to a cinema and you're so fixated on the screen in front of you, but you've got all these snacks, you don't actually realise that you're probably consuming them, and then by the end of... The film when the lights come on. Yes, and that's been shown by some of the people who work in the BRC who are experimental psychologists like Professor Jeff Bronstrom and stuff. have actually shown in laboratory settings that um, um, eating in front, whilst mindful eating is different, you get a different response than if you're eating in front of a computer, doing a computer game or whatever. It doesn't matter what you're doing, it's something that's taking your mind away from the fact you're actually eating. Yeah, no, fascinating and definitely a good tip to help with weight management and satiety. And so to just wrap up, um, we've got a few fun questions for you. So I want to know from you what your last supper meal would be. So what would be your ideal starter, your ideal main and dessert? Okay, so we can be the easy one first. I never eat pudding, so that's off. Um <laughs> So, uh, first starter, oh gosh, what do I like? I like so many starters. Um, I love little things, so some tapas type things, mm-hmm. I don't know, it doesn't matter what they are. Probably going down, walking down the street in Madrid, eating a little tapas from each different tapas bar, so that would be my starter. My main course, um, 
Oh gosh, what do I like? I I quite like food. I, yeah, okay. So it would be um, uh, veal milanese. So it's basically veal breadcrumbs mm-hmm. and a tomato sauce on a spaghetti type thing with lots of parmesan cheese <laughs> and probably far too much pasta. So it's your last supper, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, so that's all right. So there we go. So uh, a Spanish starter and an Italian main course and the pudding you can forget. <laughs> I'll have coffee. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite restaurant in Bristol? Um, yeah, you're, you're going to laugh. At Wilkes. Yeah, no, I've been there with my parents. It is delicious. Okay, second one, Wilson's, based on Shunter's Road. Oh, well, okay. I've not been to Wilson's, but I've been to Wilkes. Very good. Wow. Very good. Not, not great for the calories, but very good for the spirit. Have you heard of the restaurant Sky Kong Kong in the Bear Pit? It, no. It's really cool, and I recommend you going. It's a really small restaurant right in the Bear Pit, and it's all just one room with one long dining room table. And you basically rock up, you have to book in advance because they're always super busy and it's a small restaurant, but you rock up and you sit down with loads of people at this dining room table and there's no menu, they just serve you starter, main, little sides, dessert. When it started, the the woman used to work at Nobu. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I I didn't know what his name was. Yes, I, I went there when it started. Yes, it's very interesting. Real experience, but yeah. No, thank you so much, Professor Julian, for coming on to the podcast today. It's been a real treat having you, and um, I'll let you know when it's out to listen. So, thank you. Wowee, what an informative podcast that was today. I know I certainly learned so much, and it was a great pleasure to have him on. I've sat in his clinic a couple times at the Children's Hospital, and he truly is full of infinite wisdom and knowledge. More about Prof Julian on Bristol's website and I'll link that in the show notes and you can see all his fantastic publications he's produced over the years and his research specialties. Nutritank are proud to have featured on many of the UK's leading networks and publications, Woo-hoo! Jamie Oliver's website and his Channel 4 show, Jamie and Jimmy's Friday Night Feast, BBC News, BBC Radio 4 on Sheila Dillon's The Food Programme, Women's Health, BBC Bristol, and the Royal Society of Medicine. Nutritank is an innovative information hub of food, nutrition, and lifestyle medicine, promoting the need for greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within healthcare training and empowering members of the public to improve their health. Join the movement to bring greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education nationwide. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you want to find more about Nutritank, visit the website, Nutritank.com. Also, find us on Twitter, Nutritank underscore info, and Instagram, Nutritank underscore official. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It will really help with our mission at Nutritank to be the leading hub for food, nutrition, and lifestyle medicine. Bye for now.